Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. There's no immediate need to make that quick diagnosis. You'll probably be getting a urine on any kid between one and three months who's febrile, whether they have bronchiolitis or not. It's really about the respiratory status and the hydration status. There's steroids, there's epinephrine, there's hypertonic saline, there's ketamine, there's heliox. There's this whole laundry list of medications that we could potentially use for bronchiolitis. The SAT for me is the fifth vital sign that nobody ever really wanted and that we're stuck with. Asthma, bronchiolitis, and croup are some of the most common diagnoses we make in both general and pediatric EDs. And like many pediatric illnesses, there's a wide spectrum of severity of illness, as well as a huge variation in practice in treating these children. These respiratory illnesses rarely need any workup, yet a lot of resources are used unnecessarily. We need to know when to worry about these kids, as most of them will be fine with simple interventions, but a few will require complex care. Sometimes it's difficult to predict which kids will do well and which kids won't. Not only is it difficult to predict the course of illness in some of these kids, but the evidence for different treatment modalities for a diagnosis like bronchiolitis, for example, is all over the place, and I, for one, find it very confusing. The variation in practice across Canada in management of bronchiolitis is absolutely amazing. Then there's the sphincter-tightening, really sick kid in severe respiratory distress who's tiring with altered LOC. We need to be confident in managing these kids with severe illness. So, with the help of Dr. Dennis Skolnick, the Clinical Fellowship Program Director at Toronto's only pediatric emergency department, and Dr. Sanjay Mehta, an amazing educator who you might remember from his fantastic work on our pediatric ortho episode, we'll sort through how to assess the child with respiratory illness, how to predict which kids might run into trouble and which kids can go home, and what the best evidence-based management of these kids is. So, Dr. Skolnick, welcome to EM Cases. Hi, thanks for having me. And Dr. Mehta, welcome. Pleasure to be here. All right, let's jump straight into our first case. You're working in a busy community emergency department when a five-month-old girl is brought in by her parents with a chief complaint of difficulty breathing. She's had a cough and runny nose for the past four days and gradually increasing shortness of breath since the previous evening. This is her second visit. On the first visit, she was treated with nebulized salbutamol given ibuprofen, and sent home. Her past history reveals that she had a normal delivery with no NICU admission and no history of reactive airways. She's otherwise healthy, and there's no family history of asthma or atopy. On exam, the patient's vitals are a heart rate of 160, a respiratory rate of 60, O2 sat of 95% on room air, and a temp of 38.4. The patient's alert and does not appear toxic, but is in moderate respiratory distress with tracheal tugging and intercostal indrawing. Auscultation reveals bilateral diffuse biphasic wheeze. Normal heart sounds are heard without murmurs. Abdominal exam is unremarkable. Mucous membranes are moist. Fontanelle is flat. And cap refill is one second. So Dr. Skolnick, what are your initial thoughts on the most likely diagnosis? What would you do to confirm the diagnosis? And how would you initiate management? Uh, The most likely diagnosis would be a viral illness, which might be upper respiratory, but probably lower respiratory tract at this point. 
So a child with wheezing, we are thinking of bronchiolitis. To bring onto the map or the radar at this early point something like asthma at this age is pretty non-mainstream and wouldn't be that acceptable. So bronchiolitis would be the most likely. But we could keep it general by just saying wheeze. So in this age group, it's much more likely to be bronchiolitis than it is asthma, as Dr. Mehta will explain in a minute. And making the diagnosis in this early stage isn't so important, as you'll see in the following discussion. At this point, I don't know if there's much benefit to trying to confirm the diagnosis up front. I would try some management and use the response to that management as a better gauge of whether my initial suspicion, my initial diagnostic thought was correct. One of the things we want to do in the emergency room is we want to come to a quick diagnosis. I find that when we see these kids that are wheezing, yeah, it could be bronchiolitis, maybe it's asthma, maybe it's a foreign body. There's a whole long list of things. How can we clinically at the bedside differentiate between bronchiolitis, pneumonia, asthma, reactive airway disease, and why does it matter? I often describe this to parents and to learning doctors, young trainees, as a 15-day illness. And I say that the first five days is a little bit like a cold. The middle five days is quite a lot like asthma. And that uh, the last five days is a little bit like a cold again. And the cough can last a long time. It's often the response to treatment that helps us. For instance, is there a response to beta-2 agonists? It's also a very, clo a very close attention to the history, which will help us, the precipitants, previous history, family history, atopy. And I often talk about distinguishing between bronchiolitis and asthma as looking at a spectrum rather than trying to arrive, as many doctors want to, immediately at a diagnosis. On the side of bronchiolitis, the seasonality, it's the first time wheeze, it's the age of the child, it's the contacts, it's the response to therapy, or lack of response. On the side of asthma is the positive history of atopy, recurrence, not the right season, strong family history. And you can often use this spectrum idea as a guide where to put them on the line and, and what you're going to do about it. Pneumonia is often a little bit more focal. You've specifically given us a background that says that these are bilateral findings. The other thing is that asthma doesn't always have a fever. True asthma frequently doesn't have a fever because the precipitants, commonest precipitants are, um, uh, as you get older, become environmental, although earlier on they are viral. So you have some guidelines, but the importance of making that diagnosis very early on, because these kids are going to probably spend a minimum of two, three, four hours in the eMERGE, usually, because we're going to see how they respond, whether they stabilize, what their fluid intake is, how their SATs track. So there's no immediate need to make that quick diagnosis. We are rather going to stabilize the patient, be very careful with our examination, history and examination, and then see the response to very meta-level management options, such as making the child comfortable, giving them some oxygen, ensuring good suction, and perhaps trying some treatment modalities, which we'll be talking about soon, rather than trying to arrive at that diagnosis right at the beginning. I like that. So meta. So Dr. Meta, <laughs> what are your comments about at the bedside clinically trying to differentiate between bronchiolitis and asthma and pneumonia? 
I totally agree with Dennis. I think the hardest thing for us to do as clinicians is not be an immediate diagnostician. I think with bronchiolitis, it's important to bite your lip. You can think about it. You can suggest it to the families. But only in the mildest of cases is it really that critical to know immediately that that's what the likely cause is. Everything else, any of the moderate and severe illnesses that would also fit into that category, need a little bit of time to play themselves out so that you can monitor their respiratory status and their hydration. So I think at the bedside, it's all about trying to step back a bit using your overall clinical impression rather than reflex actions to do things, to diagnose things, to run tests. So bronchiolitis is a great entity because it's very, very clinical in nature and clinical to diagnose. So all the beating up of myself, not being able to come at an immediate diagnosis every time I see a wheezing kid, I can be a little easier on myself, eh? Absolutely. I was just going to add as well, with this baby, there's a fever. And one of the things that I do often suggest doing at the bedside immediately when you see them is giving them a dose of ibuprofen so that when you do come back in and reassess them, you have seen them now ibuprofenized and hopefully the fever is better. To remove that confounding factor. Exactly. Absolutely. And that applies to many scenarios. Yeah. When you just want to see, is that lethargy because a child's got a fever or because they're sick? Take the fever out of the, out of the equation. And you can make that assessment. And it takes time. and You don't have to rush it. Yeah. And the respiratory distress and the hydration often improve along with that. So again, you don't need to make the diagnosis of bronchiolitis right off the bat in the emergency department. So at this point, I just want to do a quick background review on what bronchiolitis is. Bronchiolitis is a lower respiratory tract viral infection as opposed to upper. It typically presents with a first time wheezing episode in the first year of life between the months of November and April in northern climates. The illness usually begins with a two- or three- or four-day viral prodrome of fever, cough, and runny nose like a regular cold, which then progresses to tachypnea, wheeze, crackles, and a variable degree of respiratory distress. And this usually goes along with the decreased oxygen saturation. Now, what about the etiology? While the most common etiology is RSV, other causes include influenza, adenovirus, and parainfluenza virus. The bottom line is that it's viral. And how about the time course? Well, Dr. Skolnick mentioned five days of kind of a cold and then five days sort of like asthma and then five days sort of like a cold again. So it's about 10, 15 days with the severity increasing over the first three to five days. Well, why should we really care about bronchiolitis? Well, it's important for us to know about bronchiolitis since it's the most common lower respiratory tract infection under two years of age. It's the leading cause of hospital admission under six months of age, and the incidence of hospitalization for bronchiolitis has been increasing year after year after year. Next, we're going to talk about specifics of the physical exam and then investigations for bronchiolitis. Let's get a little bit more into the details of the clinical exam. Dr. Mehta, what are the important aspects of the clinical exam in a patient who presents in respiratory distress in general, and specifically with bronchiolitis? What exactly are you looking for on the clinical exam? 
Yeah, so for me, it's pretty easy. It's really about the respiratory status and the hydration status. So for the respiratory status, you want to know what the normals are. So to remind everyone, newborns um, in that first month of life can breathe up to 60. So the average is 40 or 50. As you get older in infancy, so you're sort of more like a five or six month old, you're breathing closer to 30 to 40. And it's in the second year of life onward that you're breathing more in the 30s. So you have to know that to understand how abnormal abnormal is. So in our case, if our baby's breathing at 60, we give some ibuprofen or acetaminophen, the respirate actually may drop to the normal limits, although that same level would obviously be much higher if it was an older child. So wait a sec, that was quite a few numbers to remember in terms of the respiratory rate of the babies. Let's go over that again. So the average respiratory rate by age, for a term newborn, it's about 50 breaths per minute. For a six-month-old, it's about 40 breaths per minute. And for a 12-month-old, it's about 30 breaths per minute. So term 50, six months, 40, 12 months, 30 breaths. Um, Along with the rate, so the objective data, is the clinical assessment. So a lot of it is actually observational, where you don't even need to touch the child. You can look at it from the bedside, is the work of breathing the amount of indrawing, whether there's subcostal or intercostal involvement, and there's, there's splinting. Sometimes little uh, infants, especially five and six month olds who are learning to sit, will tripod sit because they're trying to expand their intrathoracic volume. They might be some nasal flaring and other accessory muscle use. And then for the hydration status, it's really tied to it. I often tell parents, I use this silly analogy, but I always say, imagine trying to run on a treadmill while drinking a coffee. It's pretty hard to do. Babies love to breathe with their nose. So if you plug that nose, they breathe with their mouth. If you are breathing with your mouth, it's really hard to drink at the same time. And feeding is a real form of exercise for babies. So if you have bronchiolitis and you have not just a lower but an upper respiratory tract level of congestion, and then you throw in the work of breathing, that can really impair their ability to tolerate fluids, which can then lead to dehydration. So for the hydration status, you're really focusing on, once again, a lot of objective data. For this, you often do have to lay hands on the child because you want to feel the skin. You want to sense the capillary refill, both peripherally and centrally. You want to get a sense of the quality of the pulses, peripherally and centrally. You want to look at the mucosal surfaces, the membranes. And obviously, this is in conjunction with the historical features so such uh, as urine output yeah looking for oliguria and intake and uh, and just the general overriding trend over the preceding few days great yeah i love that analogy with the running on a treadmill and drinking a coffee dr skolnick anything to add about the clinical exam in the child who presents with respiratory distress we talk about the apples course we have a pediatric assessment triangle And uh, under general exam, I always ask uh, people to try and think of the ABCs, which are appearance, breathing, and color or circulation. So the appearance is literally how the child's behaving. Are they lethargic or are they appropriate? Breathing, Sanjay's covered, and then circulation, Sanjay's covered. But as as a mental discipline, if you remember that those are the three elements that are going into that overall assessment, which indeed is almost a hands off type assessment. It's important and it guides you to being comprehensive. I love that ABCs of pediatric emergency medicine. I love that ABCs of pediatric emergency medicine. Instead of airway breathing circulation, it's appearance, breathing, and color. If you employ a cognitive forcing strategy where every time you see a kid, you go through the appearance, breathing, and color, it'll be hard to miss that sick kitty. Okay, so we've talked about how we'd initially approach the child who we suspect might have bronchiolitis. 
Let's move on to investigations. Now, Dr. Skolnick, what, if any, investigations are necessary to make a diagnosis of bronchiolitis? We had mentioned that you don't need to make the diagnosis right off the bat, that giving treatment and the response to treatment may help make the diagnosis for you. What's the value of investigations for bronchiolitis, such as a chest x-ray, for example? Uh, You've answered your own question. What are the important investigations? A good history and a good exam. I think that that's where it lies. You really only need to consider an x-ray. I think if you have something that is pushing you in the direction of pneumonia, focality of signs. And remember, probably because you're going to keep this kid in the eMERGE for a while anyway, and you can come back and re-examine them after good suctioning and a period of uh, stabilization, I would even delay considering the x-ray until you've reassessed the child because what might have been focal before because of a mucus plug has now been cleared. And if the child comes back to having general wheezing, no focal crackles, rather generalized crackles, I would really reserve an x-ray for where you suspect pneumonia specifically, not because they've got bronchiolitis, and where really you shouldn't do a test if it's going to change your outcome. And where, if you found something, you're going to give an antibiotic. So if you're not thinking along that line, even the x-ray should be deferred. The literature is out there that it shouldn't be a part of the routine investigation. I think that's generally accepted. Let me just try and clarify something. So I'm just trying to imagine a child in front of me who's febrile, who's in respiratory distress, and you listen to the chest and maybe they're screaming and crying and you can't really get a great chest exam, so you're not sure if it's focal or not. In your experience, does a child with bronchiolitis ever look toxic, like a child who's septic? Can you tell by just how toxic the child looks whether this is more likely to be pneumonia or bronchiolitis? I think it would be very difficult in the more ill child uh, trying to distinguish between a child who's somewhat lethargic because of marked respiratory distress versus a child who is actually toxic. I would be very careful trying to draw that distinction. But again, come back to the timing. If you give oxygen, suction, calm the child down, get the fever down, try and feed them on the breast or bottle again, go back. It doesn't matter if they were crying at the beginning, go back in 30, 40 minutes and reassess. You can make that distinction much more carefully because by then, if the breathing's good, breath sounds are equal, you can hear both sides, uh, breath sounds on both sides, and they still look crappy, excuse the language, fine, then they might be toxic. But reassessment, I wouldn't try and rush it. Don't pigeonhole your, your thoughts. Okay, I'm going to challenge you on this one. <laughs> so the number one thing we all learn about potentially septic patients is there is no time to waste. Whether it's an adult or a child, they need antibiotics as soon as possible, and they need fluid management as soon as possible, and sometimes aggressive fluid management. What would trigger you to start those antibiotics right away in a kid who's febrile and wheezing and doesn't look great, but you're not sure whether it's bronchiolitis or pneumonia with sepsis? Um, I think if the child's really that sick looking, you obviously go back to your ABCs and D is drugs or disability. You're going to be giving the drugs to cover them after culturing them if you can. And a chest x-ray would be part of the workup. But again, if the history has been the sort of lead in viral and the child doesn't look that sick, you've got time. If a child looks sick, we stop all of this pontification and we get on and do what we got to do. But sick here is 
not just that they're wheezing a lot, not just that they're breathing quickly with a bit of indrawing. Sick here would be also that they're lethargic, the eyes rolling up a little bit in the head, the cap refills three seconds. But if you have typical season, typical age, typical child, typical history, and you've got bilateral wheezes with crackles and there's indrawing, then you've got time. So I think you'd have to utilize your clinical take. What do you think of this? But uh, if in doubt, you're going to be more interventional. And I would acknowledge that the person with less experience with this disease is going to be more conservative and more careful. And that might involve doing the x-ray, putting up the IV and giving the drugs. But I think the point of where we've got to so far in the discussion would be, if at all, you can try these other measures that we've mentioned, that is a way to go. I was just going to add that for me, I think about the big picture. So most bronchiolitis doesn't have pneumonia and most pneumonia don't have sepsis. So by definition, most bronchiolitis isn't going to have sepsis. And I would differentiate sepsis at the bedside because it wouldn't just be respiratory distress and some questionable compensated shock. There would be signs of marked severe respiratory distress, not just wheezing, but periods of apnea or significant desaturations down to the 70s or 80s. Lethargy. And um, changes in mentation, um, which were pretty significant and out of keeping with just the fever, the work of breathing. And I think the circulatory status, you'd you expect borderline blood pressures, hypotension, much more prolonged cap refill time, poor perfusion. So for me, the, the distinction to use that golden hour and get the antibiotics in early would be for the patient that I'm thinking more sepsis than bronchiolitis. And almost with a degree of exclusion, I think the majority of those cases would not just have significant wheezing and moderate distress, they would have almost a lack of wheezing, more focal findings that were persistent, and mentation and circulatory changes that were out of keeping with their work of breathing. Uh, yeah, the tachycardia would be out of proportion, and most pneumonias don't have wheeze. Now, as we move into the era of pediatric ultrasound, if you really want a quick bedside test, I would pick that over an x-ray. There's really no role in either of these scenarios for an x-ray early on. So you either make your decision clinically and act on it or don't act on it. But the x-ray is a bit of an afterthought for me, more to confirm and consolidate my diagnosis. We do know also that if you do an x-ray in bronchiolitis, there's a very good chance, I would say over 40%, that there will be some sub-segmental atelectasis that most radiologists are going to say could represent early findings of airspace disease, which is going to push you towards giving antibiotics. So don't do it if you don't give that antibiotic. Right. So the chest x-ray in infants with bronchiolitis often reveals these nonspecific, maybe patchy hyperinflation areas of atelectasis, as you mentioned, which can be misinterpreted as consolidation for sure. And then they end up getting inappropriate antibiotics. Yes. So just to review here, in terms of what the value of chest x-ray is in the patient suspected of bronchiolitis, the short answer is none. In fact, the American Academy of Pediatric Clinical Practice Guideline for the Management and Diagnosis of Bronchiolitis states, quote, clinicians should diagnose bronchiolitis and assess disease severity on the basis of history and physical examination. Clinicians should not routinely order laboratory and radiologic studies for diagnosis. So no investigations are necessary in patients with a typical presentation. 
investigation should be done to rule out other diagnoses if clinically indicated. Now, chest x-rays are often needlessly ordered for kids with wheeze. There's a prospective cohort study which sought to determine the clinical predictors of an abnormal chest x-ray in children under two years of age with suspected bronchiolitis. They found that less than 5% of kids had abnormal chest x-rays as assessed by two blinded experts. The only independent clinical predictor of an abnormal x-ray of the nine variables studied was the presence of fever. Now, a validated clinical decision rule based on this would be awesome. It would be a slam dunk practice changer, and it would help improve resource utilization while minimizing radiation risk. So, chest x-ray should only be considered when the diagnosis of bronchiolitis is unclear, the rate of improvement isn't as expected, or the severity of disease raises other diagnostic possibilities like bacterial pneumonia, for example. And remember, if you're not sure of the diagnosis, you can always try some treatment, go back in an hour and reassess the patient, and then decide whether you want to do a chest x-ray or not. Next, we're going to be talking about the value of doing an RSV swab in a patient who you suspect might have bronchiolitis. So on the line of investigations, we've talked about chest x-ray and the value or lack thereof of a chest x-ray in bronchiolitis. How about nasal swabs for RSV? I remember a day when I'd refer kids from my community hospital ED to the pediatrician and they'd ask me every time, oh, did you do a nasal swab for RSV? Should we be ordering nasal swabs for RSV? Is there any role for them in infants who present with wheeze? So my simple answer is that in the majority of cases, it's a clinical diagnosis. So the short answer would be no. But there are exceptions, as there are to every rule. So with the advent of -of point-of-care testing, rapid flu testing, there are some studies that have shown that if used appropriately, if used early, especially from the triage bay, in certain ages, it can dramatically change how far you investigate a child. So we're talking younger infants, infants where there's borderline concerns about potential diagnoses in a couple of different domains. So is it a bronchiolitis? Is there a high chance that there is a concurrent UTI or a concurrent other source of infection? I think knowing upfront in a timely manner that the patient is RSV or influenza or parainfluenza positive is powerful. Traditionally, the majority of EDs use the more typical nasal swab testing where it takes a few hours or it's done outside the ED in the lab. And in those situations, the only time I tend to order swabs are in the child where there may be comorbidities, cardiac conditions, you know, ex-premature babies that were ventilated and recently discharged, um, patients where there may be immunocompromise or patients in the family who might be on chemotherapy, etc., And finally, the patients, to be honest, who bounce back and who are very likely to return in the next day or two, because knowing once again by that visit, so it's more of a pay it forward concept, but that future doc who sees them the next day or two days later for persistence of symptoms, it's gold to know that you do have RSV. It shouldn't turn off our clinical thoughts. It shouldn't stop us from still looking for complications, but it really can reassure you that this is good old solid bronchiolitis. So we talked about how to differentiate the kid with sepsis from simple bronchiolitis. However, in the younger kids, my understanding is that a certain percentage of them 
will have not only bronchiolitis, but concurrent UTI, sepsis, very rarely full-out septic shock. Dr. Skolnick, which kids who present with bronchiolitis should we be investigating for sepsis? Anton, I'd look at this the other way. Now you've got a febrile infant. That's my heading. What's the cause of the fever? Is it only bronchiolitis? So my, my starting point now is fever. I think everyone would agree below the age of four weeks, you're going to do a, se- a sepsis workup. Many clinicians would say below the age of six weeks and some even eight weeks, which takes the question away. You're going to be doing everything. They may even, might even be doing an LP. So a febrile infant, the younger they are, the more you're going to go along the line of where the fever dictates rather than the chest findings alone. It's a graduated response. In young infants, as a guideline below the age of eight weeks with a fever, many of us would also do a urine and just make sure that there isn't a UTI because it's relatively non-invasive. You get a very quick, quite accurate read without waiting for the culture. If you're a bit more worried, you might do a CBC diff and culture. But to throw an LP at a seven-week-old with fever who's also wheezing, many of us would say, hey, that's a bit too much. So it's a graduated response. So I'd also just stress that the younger the child with a negative dip, leukocytes and nitrites, the more the chance that there could still be a pure growth UTI. So that can be as high as 15% in a neonate. By the age of two to three months, depending on which paper you read, it might be as low as two, three, four percent. But it doesn't come down to the more, the older slash adult version where maybe less than one percent of people with negative leukes and nitrites would actually have a negative culture. So be careful of relying on the urine early on, but do throw in a urine for the febrile infant, the younger they are, then CBC diff culture maybe up till the age of two, three months, LP, probably deferred. Well, this is really tough. So let me just clarify there. We had talked about this a bit with Dr. Reed and Dr. Neto, that in really young infants who are febrile, that they can have a negative urinalysis, but still have a UTI with sepsis. Correct. Okay. So if we have a febrile child who's wheezing, if they're under a month, we're going to be doing a septic workup regardless. Once you get into the two or three month age, then it's not quite as clear. It depends on a host of factors. You'll probably be getting a urine on any kid between one and three months who's febrile, whether they have bronchiolitis or not. So for me, also disposition factors in as well to the decision to do the testing or not, to be honest. And I hate to admit it, but degree of fever and frequency of fever also plays in. So if it's a two and a half month old who's had the immunizations at two months and had a fever last night, but doesn't now, so has a history of fever that may or may not have been measured, but doesn't objectively and looks well and you think clinically has bronchiolitis, I don't always do a urine on those kids. If it's a child who has active fever, may or not be feeding particularly well along with the respiratory distress of bronchiolitis, and I'm questioning admission anyways, I tend to throw the book at them. So in those cases, I probably would do blood and urine. So for me, the disposition and how I'm thinking clinically factors in. So 
the issue of a false negative urine dip. In other words, doing a urine and then sending the child home, potentially missing a false negative UTI, which is well known and we've all been uh, burned by those cases, is um, less of an issue because I'm probably a priori going to be thinking about admitting those children anyways. The overall view we've tried to give is as accurate as you can get. Beyond that, it's a little bit of exercise of judgment. And you're allowed to be a little bit conservative in this respect because doing urine is not very invasive. You do know that you can get a urine within two hours via clean catch in 90% of children, babies, if you instruct the parents properly. It's an interesting paper showing that. So whilst we're all scratching our heads, suctioning, giving oxygen, wondering we need to do an x-ray, if you've instructed the parents very well at the beginning, you'll get your urine without doing any pricks or pokes or catheters in 90% of the time. Provided that they have good hydration status on board. Correct. So if they have a comorbidity like bronchiolitis, that may not be the case. Okay, that segues perfectly into the treatment for bronchiolitis. You're talking about hydration status. You know, there's the basics of making sure the kid's well hydrated, oxygen. Beyond that, there's a whole bunch of different medications. There's suctioning, there's beta agonist, there's albuterol or ipotropium bromide or like Achavent in Canada. There's steroids, there's epinephrine, there's hypertonic saline, there's ketamine, there's heliox. There's this whole laundry list of medications that we could potentially use for bronchiolitis. And there's opinions out there that say we shouldn't be giving anything for bronchiolitis. There's opinions out there that say maybe we should be giving some of these things. There's opinions out there that we should try some of these things and see what the response is. I find it very confusing. Let's talk about what the literature says first about nasal suctioning. What's the role of nasal suctioning in the treatment of bronchiolitis? Well, nasal suctioning is a little bit of managing the tip of the iceberg. So there's a whole column of mucus that's plugged throughout the lungs all the way to the nose. You have access to the nose. If there's a big blockage in one of their nares, why not try and remove that? It's only going to help, but it's quite temporary. And so often when children come into the hospital, if there's a strong history of a lot of secretions, a lot of trouble with feeding, the quote-unquote snorting that patients and parents will describe, we do tend to have a lower threshold to do deep nasal suctioning. The challenge is that the literature has shown that in children who require deep nasal suctioning versus gentle suctioning or no suctioning at all, there is an association with that same cohort of patients also being the same cohort of patients who are more likely to have a longer length of stay or be transferred or admitted to hospital. So when you get into the realm of deep nasal suctioning, that cohort of patients potentially is already a bit different than the rest of the cohort of patients. In other words, those patients where you think that they need deep nasal suctioning and that there's likely to be an improvement may be the same patients that are likely to be admitted to hospital for other reasons. In terms of the obligatory nasal breathing, we mentioned it earlier, but this is huge. And so regardless of whether you think they have a prolonged length of stay likelihood or an admission that's likely, I feel like it's basic principles. If they like to breathe at their nose and you can suction it out, why not? An interesting little anecdote in countries which don't have lots of money, the nasal suctioning is done by mouth. Gross. Yummy. But it's out there and it works pretty well. 
Okay. <laughs> so we've talked about nasal suctioning. We talked about hydration. We talked about oxygen. What about Ventolin or Atrovent or both? Dr. Skolnick, is there a role for a trial of Ventolin Atrovent in patients suspected of bronchiolitis? The literature and the recent guidelines are going to say there is no proven medication that helps bronchiolitis. Having said that, and this might be somewhat sacrilegious, I hearken back to my spectrum idea. If this child is now wheezing for the third time, and they're not five months old, they're 18 months old, and they have eczema, and daddy has asthma, and it's the middle of summer, you know what? I'm going to give a trial of a beta-2 agonist, and I am going to make the assessment, not a third party, to see if before the child looked like X and afterwards they looked like Y and the delta is worthwhile clinically, I am going to then use salbutamol. If there's no difference, I've had my trial and I'm not. Iprotropium is even further down and I say I would say less recognized to be used and really its place is more in the asthma type child. So I would try in some circumstances a trial of beta 2 agonist. Also remember that if you're going to give this, whether it's by puffer or nebulizer, you need to allow 15 to 20 minutes for a stabilization of VQ mismatch to make your reassessment. If you give it and reassess immediately, you are not going to see the true potential improvement. So suffice to say that if you're sure about the diagnosis of bronchiolitis clinically, there's no role for beta agonists. But if you're not sure about the diagnosis in a wheezing patient, especially if there's a family history of asthma or atopy or a personal history of eczema or it's not seasonal or there's something that doesn't match with bronchiolitis and this could be asthma, then a trial of Ventolin is not unreasonable. Okay, so we've talked about beta agonists. Not convincing evidence, but it's still reasonable in certain circumstances to try it. Let's move on to nebulized epinephrine. Dr. Mehta, is there a role for nebulized epinephrine in bronchiolitis? So the evidence is a bit similar to beta-2 agonists or Ventolin in the sense that there may be benefit, but generally there isn't benefit. I always laugh that the bronchiolitis order set is basically the non-order order set. You don't really have many tools on there to use. And so if you go by the recent Canadian consensus statement, it may be reasonable to try a dose of epinephrine. Once again, as Dennis said, in some sort of an objective way, look at the pre and post. And if there is a strong feeling that there has been clinical response, continue. Usually in a child where there was a high likelihood that you were going to be admitting them in exactly. the first place. This is not one that you're going to be sending home. So this is one who's on the way to the ward and you might be able to help. Yeah, I don't know why uh, epi puffer hasn't been invented yet, but there mm -hmm. isn't one. So exactly, if it's going to be of use, it's usually in a one or two dose strategy where you're trying to rescue someone from admission. But likely, if they do respond... It's going to wear off, and they're going to need another dose. 
And they probably will need other interventions because that's the cohort of patients that were likely sick enough to come into the hospital. So there is some data suggesting that it can reduce your admission rates if you look at it early in the illness. But if you look at the long-term outcomes within a week or two weeks, it doesn't really change outcomes. So I'm torn about epinephrine. I do use it in certain situations. But I would, as an overriding principle, say that it's similar to beta-2 agonists. It's not really a very generalizable or practical medication that we should be using for the majority of bronchiolitis patients. And in those cases, those kids probably have some element of reactive airways, disease, asthma. I'm thinking that, or the other literature would say they are bronchiolytic kids who are responders. So some literature sort of says 15% respond to this and 8% respond to that and 20% respond to the other. Whatever we call it, I would say clinically, if you're going to do it, use it somewhat objectively, but don't make it automatic. Okay. So for both Ventolin and epinephrine, it's on a trial basis that we might use it. For epinephrine in particular, it's for those kids who are thinking are going to need admission that we might give a trial. And if you go with the American guidelines, which came out recently, they don't even suggest doing a trial of epinephrine. So there is a bit of a difference even in opinion amongst the other experts out there. So my practice is, yes, what you said, a trial if you think they're going to be admitted anyways. So a Cochrane review in 2011 found that epinephrine reduced admission rates only on day one, but not on day seven, suggesting that treatment with nebulized epinephrine would only delay the need for admission temporarily. It may be reasonable to administer one dose of epinephrine and carefully monitor clinical response. However, unless there's clear evidence of improvement, continued use really isn't appropriate. Now, what about steroids for bronchiolitis? There's been two big systematic reviews on this topic. One was in 2013 by the Cochrane Collaboration, and it showed no benefit for admission rates or length of stay. And another systematic review in the Annals of Emergency Medicine pretty recently, just in October 2014, found no effect of glucocorticoids on length of stay or admission rates again. So while the evidence for epinephrine and steroids by themselves isn't very good, there is one interesting big RCT that combined the two that we're now going to talk about. I understand that there is one large RCT that showed a benefit of a combination of nebulized epinephrine plus oral dexamethasone. Can you tell us a bit about the study and what your bottom line is with using dex and nebulized epinephrine in bronchiolitis? So Amy Plant's study was a forearm trial where one arm received nebulized epinephrine and a placebo oral medication. Another arm received dexamethasone and placebo inhaled medication. Another arm received inhaled epinephrine and oral dexamethasone. And the fourth arm received placebo inhalation and placebo oral medication. And what they were looking at was the clinical outcome of admission within seven days of enrollment in the study. Bottom line, they found that there was no difference statistically between the four arms. Initially, there was a p-value of 0.02 in the epinephrine dexamethasone group. However, after adjustment for multiple comparisons, this was deemed insignificant because it actually went to a p-value of 07. 
So there was no clinical or statistical significance to the epi and dex unless you rely on the pre-adjusted value. And even then, there was no clinical difference. It was a statistical system. Yeah, I think that's important, that the actual clinical significance of the difference a priori was still not really great yeah. enough, I believe, to change clinical practice. Right. Okay, that's interesting because in the Canadian Pediatric Association guidelines, it says the evidence is equivocal for combined epinephrine and dexamethasone. So they're kind of just sitting on the fence with it. Yeah, because it is. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> All right. So no, certainly no good evidence that inhaled epinephrine plus oral dexamethasone should be mainstream. Should be mainstream for sure. I guess it's something that you could try, but the evidence is really not there. So just to review so far with the treatment of bronchiolitis, yes, hydration, yes, oxygen, yes, nasal suction. Ventolin, only if you're not sure about the diagnosis or just as a trial, but for pure bronchiolitis that you're sure of, there's no good evidence that it's beneficial. For nebulized epinephrine, yes, you can try a trial for those patients who you're thinking might be admitted, but again, the evidence isn't great. Oral steroids, evidence isn't great. A combination of nebulized epinephrine and oral steroids, there has been this one big RCT, but it didn't really show any real clinical significant difference. So let's move on now to nebulized 3% hypertonic saline for bronchiolitis. So it makes physiological sense that saline would reduce airway edema and mucus plugging that underlies the pathologic changes in the airway of kids with bronchiolitis. What does the literature tell us about the effectiveness of hypertonic saline and bronchiolitis? So with hypertonic saline, it initially caused a lot of excitement amongst the early studies because there was a demonstration of some improved outcomes in terms of reduction in length of stay for inpatients and improvement in severity. The problem with it is that it's a very temporizing measure. So it can give you a definite improvement in feeling good. The mucus plugging improves, the quality of the breathing is uh, maintained. However, there doesn't consistently seem to be any data that shows that there's a true difference in admission rate, oxygenation, and if anything, the benefits of it are quite short in duration. So in my general practice, I would save nebulized hypertonic saline for patient who was being admitted and there was nothing to lose, even if it's a short-term temporizing measure, not to really rescue them from being admitted. Yeah, and the Canadian guidelines say, again, the evidence is equivocal. The conclusion that the Canadian guidelines came to is based on a whole bunch of data that really is conflicting. There was a Cochrane review in 2013 that showed reduced length of stay in patients hospitalized for bronchiolitis, as well as reduction in severity scores. Then there was a study of about 31 patients who found a reduction in respiratory distress assessment scores, but there was no difference in admission or oxygen saturation. And then another study of about 200 patients showed that hypertonic saline reduced the rates of admission from 43 to 29%, as well as a reduction in a respiratory distress assessment score of about that amount too. 
So the bottom line is the guidelines say it's equivocal. There's some studies that say it does reduce admission rates and might be helpful for the severity and other studies that don't. So let's say that your five-month-old is clinically looking worse and not satting well despite supplemental oxygen. Now you're starting to think about throwing the kitchen sink. Is there any role for ketamine or heliox or nitric oxide in the sick, sick bronchiolytic infant? My take-home actually is an option that isn't here, and that is high-flow oxygen. They are using now high-flow oxygen, which is really the ability to give a lot of oxygen, which is warmed and humidified in such a way that it doesn't dry and irritate the airway effectively. That's crudely what it is. This modality has been used in the children who are so sick with asthma or with uh, bronchiolitis who you're thinking you have to intubate. And these are children we don't want to intubate unless we have to because they're difficult to ventilate. They're difficult to extubate. And the sequelae and uh, side effects of our intervention are greater, such as pneumothorax uh, or airway damage. So high-flow oxygen. Dr. Mehta, what's your take on high-flow oxygen? So I think high-flow oxygen is awesome because it gives you PEEP and it gives you high humidity, and that's often a big deficiency in these patients. The problem is toleration of the mask. It's like sticking your mouth out the window and driving really fast. Air blowing in is not comfortable. So for the patient where oxygenation is an issue, I don't think Heliox is really in my set of tools because you need high row 2. And in the patient where they may tolerate a mask really well because they're fatiguing and they're tired and they have their mouth open, I think high-flow oxygen absolutely is a, is a great tool. I think in terms of ketamine and nitrous oxide, ketamine is really with the thought that you are probably going to be intubating them. It's usually as an RSI, and the complication rates from intubation, the barotrauma, etc., are so high that for me, that is what I would give if I had absolutely no choice and we did have to intubate. But most of the time, if they can be temporized with the hypertonic saline as a last-ditch attempt, the nebulizers like we've talked about, if that doesn't work and they're of a subgroup that might tolerate the high-flow mask, then high-flow oxygen. But I haven't really used heliox nor ketamine too often because for me that's a different cohort of patients. And thinking also of how ketamine is supposed to work, uh, the downside is uh, the secretions that it can increase. And the upside, I guess, is bronchodilation. But we're trying to distinguish this group as the children who don't have bronchoconstriction as a primary part of their illness, that they're not asthmatic. So uh, although I've never used it, even in theory, it, it makes less sense to me to consider it, except absolutely for RSI. Okay, a couple comments there. Yeah, I think for ketamine, we should probably be thinking about it more in the asthmatic. The secretions, my understanding is that it's only at high doses, so like intubation doses, that it does cause an increase in secretions. That if we're going to be using it at a low sub-dissociative dose, that's not going to cause too much of a problem with secretions. However, as you mentioned, in bronchiolitis, the problem isn't so much the constriction of the bronchioles. And so that benefit that ketamine would give you of bronchodilation isn't really physiologically sensible. I just want to make a clarification here for high-flow oxygen. What Dr. Skolnick and Dr. Meta are talking about is high-flow oxygen by mask. 
There was a Cochrane Collaboration review in 2014 for high-flow nasal cannula therapy for infants with bronchiolitis, and it showed that based on one small RCT, there was no clinical benefit, but it did appear to be safe. So again, we're not talking about nasal prong high-flow oxygen, but high-flow oxygen by mask that your RT will come down and set up for you. So after reviewing bronchodilators, steroids, hypertonic saline, epinephrine, and all the other treatments that we've talked about for bronchiolitis, it seems that there's really no great evidence-based answer for the best treatment to bronchiolitis. That being said, Dr. Mehta, can you give us your treatment approach to a five-month-old first-time Weezer with a clear clinical diagnosis of bronchiolitis with nasal congestion, low-grade fever, who's satting, say, 90%. So at this point, the evidence is strongest for use of oxygen for a saturation that's below 90% and hydration in the form of oral or IV as needed. The evidence is against a consistent benefit for trials or ongoing use of salbutamol, steroids at low or high dose, antibiotics, any virals are discouraged. The evidence is equivocal for hypertonic saline, and it's primarily in an admitted patient. There is one study showing potential benefit of a combination of epinephrine and dexamethasone, but not of clinical significance. There's some evidence for epinephrine in the patient who might be rescued from being admitted. And there's value and some data to the benefit of nasal suctioning, although an increasing trend in those who need deep suctioning to likely having longer lengths of stay and higher chances of being admitted. So what I would do with this patient is give ibuprofen. I wouldn't act on that SAT of 90% because to me, that's still borderline. And I would also gauge whether that SAT changes with wakefulness so if this is a SAT that's 90% when they're sleeping versus a SAT of 90% when they're awake, and whether this is a SAT that precipitously drops, or if it's a SAT that goes up and down and undulates around that level. In terms of medication, I would reassess. If the work of breathing was increasing, the wheezing was getting worse, the lethargy was increasing, I would consider a trial of nebulized epinephrine. I wouldn't give steroids, I wouldn't give salbutamol, I wouldn't do hypertonic saline at this point unless they did respond to epinephrine and or they continued to need fluids to the point where I was admitting them. I would add something there just to give the other half of the balance. If I'd kept the child for four hours in the eMERGE, they've drunk quite well, the 90% is the sleep sat, they're on day 10 of their illness, this is, a, this is a child that can go home. They can go home wheezing. They can go home breathing at 60. They can go home with a sat of 90 if good parents understand well, reasonable follow-up, they know when to come back. We've watched them for several hours. They haven't gone down the tubes. So over and over again, it comes back to that full history, full exam, period of observation, plus minus some trials of stuff. You can get these kids home. So that's interesting, an O2 sat of 90. I mean, that's that's a pretty low O2 sat to be sending a kid home with. I understand that there was a study out of the hospital for sick children. I've got to tell you about this study, and um, I think it's just been published in JAMA. 
what Dr. Shu did was she jimmied, messed with the saturation machines. So they gave a false saturation. They were programmed that below 88, it had to be true. But 88, 90, 91 could have been 93 or 89 or 97. And she then let nature take its course to see how the clinicians behaved with these bronchiolytic kids, with the only variable being a funny saturation. And she caught doctors treating numbers and not patients. In other words, they were worried by the 89%, and that led them along, let's say, towards trying some drugs and getting them admitted. But some of those children had a SAT of 97, and they didn't need it. So uh, what I've learned from her is normal people can SAT down to 88 in their sleep. I don't want a person with respiratory disease going home awake with an 88. But with the caveats that Sanjay's mentioned period of observation, 90 was the lowest, 89 was the lowest. When they wake up, it goes immediately up to 97. That's a different kettle of fish from a kid who's got indrawing, breathing at 72, didn't take the last two bottles that were offered, and they're at uh, 90 or 91 when awake. But you can think about each and every sign and symptom that we're looking at. So suffice to say that a kid who's looking golden, clinically looks great, no indrawing, Drinking. Drinking. Yeah, their respiratory and hydration status are perfect. If their O2 sat is 89%, 90%, they can go home. The sat for me is the fifth vital sign that nobody ever really wanted and that we're stuck with. So I think standard practice is that you still get the sat on these kids. But what I find interesting about the Susanna Shu study was that I think it's obvious that the lower the SAT, the more the clinical decision that most of us would make, rightly or wrongly, would be to admit these kids. That, for me, was not a surprise. What for me was a surprise, that with the simple manipulation of a plus or minus of 3% on the machine, or as Dennis said, the Jimmy, the, the SAT probe to read differently, there was a huge difference in the clinical admission disposition at the high end. In other words, the saturations where there was a difference from 96 to 98% had a more disproportionate representation in the admissions than at the lower end. So it just speaks to the fact that docs look at numbers, whether we like them or not, and we make our decisions. And the interesting thing about this study was that no matter what the SAT was and what the decision, there were zero adverse patient outcomes. I was just going to add for the oxygen saturation, there's an interesting, interesting cohort of data coming from a group based out of Denver, which is at higher altitude, that shows that the oxygen saturation, obviously for their group of patients, is even less relevant. That's maybe not the truth for centers which are closer to sea level like Toronto, but is also an important point to highlight that their outcomes are actually quite similar, even when their saturation levels and their PO2 levels are quite different. Now, obviously, it's a different population that's been acclimatized. But once again, another plug for the O2SAT not being the paramount decisive decision breaker, but a good clinical sense based on history and physical. So in a minute, we're going to talk about the guidelines for admission from the Canadian Pediatric Society. But before we do that, I want to talk a little bit about apnea and the risk for apnea in bronchiolitis. Dr. Mehta, could you just tell us a little bit about which kids are at risk 
for apnea because those are the kids who we're going to worry about more. So the children at risk for apnea are really those children who were born SGA, small for gestational age, smaller than about five pounds, previous apneas, potentially when they were in the NICU or for other reasons, children under age two months. So we know that the younger infants are higher risk and children with saturations that are already less than 90%, because as we know from the hemoxyglobin dissociation curve, the slope becomes more steep. In other words, the oxygen will drop more precipitously in this group. So young infants, small infants, previously apneic infants, and already hypoxic infants are the key groups to look out for. Okay, so those are the kids that are at risk for apnea, and of course those kids we want to worry about more and we might be more likely to admit what do the Canadian Pediatric Society guidelines of 2014 say about guidelines for admission? So the children that the Canadian guidelines really focus on as being high candidates for admission are children who have significant, severe respiratory distress with indrawing, grunting, tachypnea greater than 70 or 80. Children who have oxygen needs because of saturations that are consistently less than 90%. And I would add in when they're awake, dehydration or ongoing likelihood of failure of maintaining hydration, history of apnea, either at home or in your ED, and or cyanosis, aka spells. And then there's a whole group of children who are at higher risk for severe disease. So the premature babies, usually less than 34, 35 weeks, the smaller infants, less than two or three months the significant cardiac underlying disease, either repaired or unrepaired, and children who themselves are immunodeficient or in households with immunodeficiency. And finally, the quote-unquote softer signs, but important nonetheless, which is the ability of the family to cope socially, financially, psychologically with the illness. Dr. Skolnick, one thing I've wondered and my residents have wondered is the infant who's less than a month old, if they're afebrile and you think they have bronchiolitis, is there any indication to admit those kids, even if they fulfill all these other criteria for discharge, just because of their age? No, there's no need to automatically admit, but you would scrutinize those criteria quite carefully. If the child is breathing 67 but not 70, or there's quite marked in drawing, or they're right at the beginning of their illness, Again, spectrum, spectrum. I'm towards watching them for a bit. But if they're already day seven of illness, great parents, they're wheezing, drinking, ton. No, no, no automatic. I perhaps would ask those parents to carefully measure the rectal temperature once or twice a day to do see a good doc the next day. So if you can mobilize your resources, you're still allowed to think. Don't make it an automatic thing. So just to review again, the guidelines for admission by the Canadian Pediatric Society guidelines in 2014 for bronchiolitis, number one, signs of severe respiratory distress like indrawing, grunting, or respiratory rate over 70, supplemental oxygen required to keep saturations above 90%. Note that you can accept an O2 sat of as low as 91% for discharge, dehydration or history of poor fluid intake, cyanosis or history of apnea, Infants that are at high risk for severe disease like premature infants of less than 35 weeks gestational age or less than three months old, 
hemodynamically significant cardiopulmonary disease or immunodeficiency. And lastly, the family is unable to cope. So that about wraps it up for this month's episode. Just a reminder that all the episodes are now available on iTunes, and the newest episodes are all available on SoundCloud. And I hope to see you all at the Emergency Medicine Update Conference in May in Toronto. This year, we've got some amazing speakers who've all been on EM cases. Walter Himmel, Scott Weingart, Amal Matu, Stuart Swadron, and many others. Oh, and one last thing. Don't forget to check out the awesome pediatric guidelines, podcasts, pearls, pitfalls, all kinds of great stuff at trek.ca. That's T-R-E-K-K dot C-A. So until next time, take it easy. Mm-hmm.